Hi, welcome to episode 63 of Talk About the Passion, Search and Destroy. My guest today is Joel Gostin, and I named this episode after the Stooges song because this is what Joel seems to do. Joel is a journalist, a drummer, a lover of music and life. Joel was recommended to me by my friend Larry Kelly as someone who I should meet and get on the podcast. And uh, we've been friends on Facebook for a couple of years now, and I knew immediately he would be a great guest for this show. Joel's passion for music uh, stems back to uh, growing up in uh, New Jersey. His encyclopedic knowledge of music, uh, timelines of artists. He, he talks about making uh, like um, timeline trees for, for bands when, when he was younger. Uh, everything is right there. So some of his stories here are amazing. Like, uh, you know, at 17, he was rehearsing with the Misfits, who were then uh, auditioning different singers, eventually uh, settling on uh, Michael Graves. Uh, he had three tours of duty with, uh, Bobby Steele's The Undead over, I think, uh, like 10 years of, of playing with them, uh, as well as stints on Electric Frankenstein and Pigface. Uh, so he's, he's played with some, uh, pretty amazing people. So that, that's pretty awesome. And he, he's got some great stories about that and how all those happened. Uh, we talked quite a bit about his work as a writer, as well as growing up in New Jersey. Um, he's, uh, Joel's also in unapologetic uh, Barry Manilow fan so uh, I talked to him about that briefly at the beginning and uh, and just yeah he's, he's, he's awesome he's, he's no bullshit guy and uh, it's cool to have him on here um, Joel at the end tells you how to order his latest book uh, The 3am Girls as well as where to read some of his writing interviews essays reviews and that kind of thing uh, it's joelgoston.com um, but he, he gives you all that information at the end of this a couple more things and we will get started here. You can follow me on social media. I keep Instagram and Facebook pretty up to date. Uh, just search for Talk About the Passion podcast. And those are the best places to find out when a new episode is going to come out or posts related to guests and that kind of thing. Um, I generally never reveal who is going to be on the podcast before I put them out. Uh, but sometimes I'll put hints or, or just, you know, whatever. But And then after, I'll, I'll, I'll often post stuff related to past guests or just stuff I think listeners of this podcast would uh, be interested in. Uh, you can like and subscribe to the podcast. I'm on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, YouTube, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Anyhow, let's get to this episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Let's get going with episode 63, Search and Destroy. Here's Joel Gosling. I'm here with Joel Gostin. How are you doing today, sir? Good, man. How are you? Very good. Very good. Uh, thanks for taking out the time to uh, talk today. Oh, of course. Thanks for your uh, interest in having me on. Yeah, yeah, of course. I was hoping, you know, I, I think like you, I, I like to do face-to-face -face, uh, talks with people, but obviously that's uh, something we can't really do right now, but hopefully, uh, I'm sure someday we'll, we'll meet face-to-face -face since we're... Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Yeah. I, I can't wait for just regular life to resume whenever that's going to be. I know, right? Um, so yeah. where, where did you grow up, Joel? Uh, I was born and raised in New Jersey, yeah. uh, in northern New Jersey, until I was 25. Yeah. Then I lived in Los Angeles for a few years, uh, bounced back to New Jersey for a couple more years, 
um, met a girl from New Hampshire actually at a funeral. <laughs> and, uh, within six months, we were engaged, and I moved up to New Hampshire, where I live now, and uh, raised a stepchild and was married for uh, just under seven years, eight years. Oh, okay. um, you know, I we got divorced uh, early last year, but I'm still in New Hampshire at the moment. Right. Um, so, yeah, but I, my roots are in New Jersey still. Yeah. You know, most of my friends are still in the same area down yeah. there. So I make every effort to land my feet in Jersey as much as possible. Yeah. And uh, so as a, as a kid, how did you get into music and that kind of thing? In that uh, well, I started playing drums when I was in the fifth grade. Yeah. Um, at that time, I had an interest in being an actor. Okay. And my father suggested in order to get experience performing in front of people, I should consider joining the school band. Mm -hmm. You know, that was an easy way to get practice in that. Right. Uh, and this was around the time, this would have been 86, 87. So that was really the height of MTV. Yeah. yeah. And I just fell headfirst into music big time at that point. And during that period of time, that was really the, the heyday of, hair metal and yeah, stuff yeah. like that yeah. and really 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 good 80s pop yeah 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 you know i fell into all that stuff and i remember watching the video for the bon jovi song you give love a bad name yeah and there's a scene in that video when the drummer tico throws up a drumstick and then like a bunch of drumsticks you know shower down oh, yeah, on him yeah, yeah. yeah. And I thought it was so cool. I'm like, I'm going to be a drummer. So that was kind of my <laughs> my gateway to being a drummer. Um, so started playing in the school band. Hated it. Hated the, uh, the uh, teacher running the school band. So within a year, I was taking private lessons from a uh, older kid in the neighborhood mm -hmm. um, who was a few years older than I was. I think he was in high school when I was still in grammar school. Right. Uh, turned me on to punk. He uh -huh. gave me a mix gave me a mixtape one day, just said punk on. He goes, listen to this stuff. You know, this is what I'm into. Right. And the first song on the tape was Blitz Creek Bop. Oh, uh, okay. What a great way to <laughs> be injured <laughs> that whole world. So, you know, that tape had the Ramones, Circle Jerks, uh, Agent Orange, some local hardcore bands from New Jersey at the time. Yeah. Um, fast forward just a little bit, that's when... Uh, Revelation Records got really big. Oh, yeah. Yep. In effect, was putting out all those classic hardcore records. Yeah. Um, so it kind of gradually grew from there. I started looking at um, album sleeves, like a lot, of, a lot of kids do at that age, and yeah. see what other listed, and you go track those bands down. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. You know, so, you know, by the time I was in eighth grade, I, just by digging into anything considered underground, I had gone from really getting into to the Ramones and those bands I just mentioned, and yeah. getting into stuff like Throbbing Gristle and right. you know the the industrial stuff. So it all kind of hit me within you know the span of just a couple of years. I really kind of just engrossed myself in what was then considered underground music. You know, right. well before the Nirvana thing happened. Yeah. Um, you know, so when Nirvana became a big deal, I was kind of listening to them thinking, 
Well, it sounds like Killing Joke and Husker do, and I've already got those records. <laughs> yeah, I don't really yeah. need this one, you know? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I was this little 13-year-old snot-nosed purist <laughs> when it came to music, you know? Yeah. And That's how it all started. And before that, as a kid, we were kind of talking a little before we hit record, uh, like adult contemporary, that kind of stuff, and pop was was around your house. Did that stay with you once you discovered punk, or did you... And that kind of stuff, or to put that aside and then come back to it later, because that's kind of what I did. I, I was kind of embarrassed that I was, you know, loved the Grease soundtrack, but then, you know, once I got into my 30s, I was like, I don't, I don't fucking care. Um, I always just liked what I liked. Yeah. Uh, nice. When something affected me, it, it stayed with me. Yeah. Um, I, I was always, especially in high school, always sort of seen as the musicologist guy. Yeah. Um, Cause I was so into all kinds of music. Right. And that also when I started sort of figuring out, I wanted to be a professional journalist, right. which I am now. Yeah. So I was always researching bands. I remember uh, when I was still in grade school, actually making big diagrams of family trees of different bands. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> I have them all over my bedroom wall, so I was pretty psycho about it, and <laughs> I, I never lost my love of anything that hit me. Yeah. So, you know, whether it be Barbara Streisand or Psychic TV, whatever it happened to be, it was equally important to me. So I never really followed any kind of trendiness as far as, oh, well, you can't listen right, to this. Right. Yeah. You know, music is music. Um, it's almost like we don't have a choice as far as what hits us right. musically. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I've never discounted any music that evokes something or yeah. reminds something important. You know, the first guitar riff I ever heard or remember hearing was Satisfaction by the Stones. Yeah. I think I must have been three or four years old. I remember sitting on my porch or I, I had fallen asleep on my front porch <laughs> at the house. Yeah. I didn't realize at the time that it had been, it had been freshly painted blue. Yeah. So I woke up with my Oshkosh is covered in blue and my mother coming out and freaking out, you know? Um, but she was playing satisfaction in, inside the house. So that instantly connects something to me. And I've had many experiences like that with music. Yeah. Um, so I've never been, um, I've never been kind of a, a, a purist in a sense that I, I, I've never been prejudiced against genre. Um, what turns me off about some music is lack of originality and vision. Yeah. yeah. Which again was kind of like what turned me off with the grunge thing being what exploded, you yeah. know, of all the genres and all the bands that were out there, that's what became huge. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I could, I couldn't never really get behind that yeah. era. No, no, no. I mean, Barry Manilow is my king. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah. <clears throat> One of the world's best performers. I, I will see him live in a heartbeat and yeah. have many times. Yeah. And, uh, There's never any rule book when it comes to appreciation of art. No, there shouldn't be. You know, and I, I, I always think back to that as a kid. I probably missed out on a good chunk because I, you know, thought, you know, oh, I can't listen to Iron Maiden now that I'm uh, shaved my head and I like Black Flag, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of glad that was a, a short period for me because there's no reason. I think nowadays kids 
aren't like that as much as we were. I think a lot of you see these festivals where they'll have like, you know, black metal bands and hip hop bands. Well, maybe not that extreme, but they'll have a lot of uh, crossover. You know, so it's good to see that. Right. Well, I mean, well, I I was uh, thirteen, I believe, when the first Law of Palooza happened. Yep. And it was such a critical time for music because you saw so many genres kind of being blended together. Yeah. Even in New York at the time, you know, you'd have like just disparate bands playing together. You know, it made sense for a band like Warrior Soul, for example, yeah. play the limelight, you know, um, and just just eclecticism because people weren't really defining themselves yet. They were sort of kind of just floating around. Yeah. You'd have goth bands play with metal bands, and then they had the rap metal thing sort of seeping in there, too. Yeah. So it was kind of a cool time to be introduced to the local scene because there was so much eclecticism going on. Yeah. And then that became sort of the spirit of the 90s, so it was actually a great time to be in high school because it really introduced an era where... You know, a band like Shudder to Think yeah. could have a major label deal. I know, you know? I know that's crazy. And that I wasn't know. a bad thing, you know. It, 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 yeah, so I mean, it really sort of gave an opportunity to, uh, as a music listener, really sort of dive into uncharted waters and discover everything. Yeah. And so yeah, it's, it, that was a, that was definitely a unique time. And but I think today it, it, there's a greater advantage in that. There is such a groundswell of music everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, technologies turning anybody into a recording studio or a label. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of shit to sift through, but there's still a lot of treasures to be hunted down and discovered at the same time. Yeah, and the, and then especially now with this, uh, with people locked down, uh, it's it's actually a good time for artists to get stuff out there just in. in new and original ways like doing these live feeds and, and selling uh, rare stuff online and limited stuff and that kind of thing so it's 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 definitely making uh people have to work a little harder which is cool because it's for fans of the music uh we're getting some interesting stuff you know well i think it's actually great in a sense that the music industry has fallen apart so much in the last 20 years yeah yeah it, it, it's it's taken the carrot that was being dangled in everyone's face and yeah. thrown it away because yeah. there's no carrot left anymore. Right. So what that has enabled people to do is just focus on the art and not so much the commerce. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I think that's a great thing is you get more honesty in what people are doing. Yeah. Um, nobody, I mean, there, there always will be bands and artists that will, you know, reach somewhat comparable levels of success that we maybe saw in the 90s but those opportunities are very very slim yeah uh, so it's just a matter of people whether it be doing what i do mainly you know these days and publishing things independently um or putting out their own music electronically on Bandcamp or something right. um because there's no real financial incentive you're really seeing people pursuing um, an artistic incentive. Yeah. So in my view, the quality, not only is it, is it voluminous in a sense, but it's better because you're getting, you're getting something that's not manufactured for a marketplace because the marketplace doesn't exist. Yeah. 
Um, so while it's 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 difficult for career musicians, and I've known many over the years, yeah. um, the current climate we're in does does present some interesting um, opportunities to find things that might be a bit more real yeah. than something that's just shit out right. from a conveyor belt somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back a little, do you remember um, your first live? Uh, show that you saw as a, as a kid? Uh, that would have been Bon Jovi. Yeah. <laughs> I am a Jersey kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah in 87, okay. uh, that was the height of the whole Slippery When Wet era. Yeah, yeah. So those guys were kings of the world, and you know, being Jersey guys, it was a big deal to go see them. Yeah. And at the uh, old Meadowlands Arena, oh, yeah. and the opening act was Keel. Remember the band Keel? Yeah, yeah, Ron Keel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they had that big that song that summer. Um, Somebody's waiting. Oh, I think yeah, was, yeah. That was the big track off of that album. Huh. Um, yeah, it was great, you know. And then, um, you know, I went from going to arenas to see bands like that to, you know, um, that was well. I mean, that was a very impactful show for me because it was yeah. the first I'd ever been to an arena. But right. a show that happened two or three years later, actually three years later that was a real gateway experience was I went to go see Biohazard. Oh, okay, yeah. And Biohazard put out that first album on Maze. Yeah, Maze, yeah. Um, they were playing a place in Jersey called Obsessions. Yeah. Uh, that was where, I, where all those guys would play in, in Jersey. Yeah. And uh, I was still, I think I was still in grammar school. Yeah, it must have been. Mm -hmm. and, but that was the first time I'd gone to a show where the band was right there. Yeah, yeah talk to the band and, and there was no separation between band and audience. Yeah. Just prior to that, I was going to arena shows. Right. Um, that was my gateway to the next step I took, which was getting more active into the underground scene because of that reason. There was no barrier. Right, it was right. just you know, the band and the crowd were one kind of thing. And I, I really got enthused by the idea of the hardcore community and the underground community and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of a kind of a big leap from Bon Jovi to Biohazard, <laughs> but that's that's how it all played out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, I think a lot of us are like that though, have those uh shows like that where the, the first one is, is, is something like that, but, but What I, was your show? Mine was uh Cat Stevens. That was that. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, my my dad took us to see him. On, I think it was the, I was six, so I, I don't remember that one. <clears throat> the first ones I remember are like, uh, he took us to see like Super Tramp and a lot of the A&M bands, uh, Sticks. Uh, but the, the first one I really remember was he took us to see Kiss at the LA Forum on the Love Gun tour with Cheap Trick. And... Uh, so that one stuck with me, <laughs> you know. That that was a pretty important concert for me, and uh, so yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I didn't see Kiss the first time until the Revenge tour. Okay, that's a good record. Uh, I like that record. Yeah, I do too. I I I'm a big Kiss guy too, yeah. and I, I my nine year old. Well, he was then nine. Yeah. Um, I took my nine year old to see Kiss when they obviously were back with the makeup and yeah. everything. Yeah, and uh, just to see his face, man, as yeah. a nine-year-old kid watching that show, <laughs> like, I, one of my proudest moments is I took him to see a Kiss show because he'll be eighty years old remembering that night. <laughs> yeah, know? of course, I know. And that's what you want to give somebody is that yeah. experience, whatever you can. I know. 
that's that's one thing I, a, a lot of my friends now that have kids it's cool to see them taking their kids now to see like hey, I took my kid to see Iron Maiden and he loved it and they have pictures of the you know the 11 year old kid with the the Iron Maiden it's I think that's great cuz I you know it, it's important to have those experiences and you know my dad took me to that stuff even though he wasn't really a fan of like Kiss but uh I think it's important to to pass that torch to your kids if they're if they're into it you know yeah, absolutely, and it's, it was interesting when I was watching him grow up, seeing what music he stuck to. Yeah, um, it was always kind of surprising, you know. I mean, he cause he was also a big video game kid. Yeah, and initially, I'm like, oh man, you know, he's just kind of sitting there, you know, playing video games. But it's much different now than it was when we were kids because right. they're they're all interacting with each other, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Various people, so but the so soundtrack cool. of these games are awesome too mm -hmm. because. I remember one night I, I walked by his room and uh, I'm trying to think of what song it was. I think it was Ultravox. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> it was coming through one of his games. No, no, no. I'm sorry. It was um, it was 45 Grave, Party oh, Time. Okay. That's even weirder, yeah. Huh. Yeah, coming through one of his video games and he's singing along and uh, huh. I'm like, oh, damn, that's great. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's what it takes, you know? Yeah, yeah. I know, right? So I, I, I became very fond of him playing video games at that point because yeah. he, he was exposed to cool music largely, you know, and that wasn't an avenue I thought would be possible. Yeah. Um, but he ended up listening to The Cure and Magazine. Oh, wow. You know, nice. pretty obscure stuff because my, my then wife and I always had music going in the house. Yeah. Um, but he really he really kind of stuck to, like, a lot of British post-punk stuff. Oh, which. Awesome. Nice. Yeah, it made me pretty proud. He was yeah, listening yeah. to, you know, he was listening to magazine and um, Howard Devoto when he was like eleven, you know. <laughs> so it was, it was definitely a proud dad moment definitely. for sure. I know. I don't. You don't hear that that too often. That name, mm. that band either. That's that's another uh, underrated uh, band. <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, John McGeoch is such a or was such an amazing player. Yeah. You know, those records are just treasures. Yeah. Did uh, so? So, you were playing drums, and did you eventually get into a a, a band? And uh, yeah, I started playing out um, in clubs by the time I was fourteen. Okay. And I was typically playing in bands with people who were a good five or six years older than I was. Right. Um, you know, uh, the, the early bands were significant to me in that I'm still friends with a, a lot of those guys, yeah. even today. Yeah. We're back a lot of years. Right. Um, but I was kind of doing a local band thing and then ended up um, kind of serving as a quasi-rehearsal drummer for the Misfits for several months. Yeah, yeah. When I was 17, yeah. um, when I was still in high school. So from there, um, doing that experience, meeting, you know, people at that level, right. you know, I ended up going from that to um, still kind of doing the local band thing in Jersey, but also playing with guys like Electric Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, ended up playing in the Undead for ten years, on and off with yeah. Bobby. Nice. Steel. Um, from there, I ended up going into pig face and that that happened on and off for 18 years you know so yeah, yeah. it's kind of this um unexpected journey where i ended up you know working with people who were on the posters in my bedroom you know when i was much yeah, younger yeah, yeah. 
But yeah, I've been playing for for a long time in in clubs. Um, you know, never never really did it as a career. Right. Um, there was one point when I lived in Los Angeles. Um, I was in a band, and we were doing pretty well. Yeah. And we were we were in discussions with uh, a pretty big producer and a very big label. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't mention because it didn't it didn't work out. Right. Um, and you know, part of it for me was realizing that I could give that a try, yeah. but that was, you know, dropping everything else in my life, right. including my career, uh, you know, elsewhere, right. and then hoping for the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there have been so many changes in the industry at that point. This was like circa 2003. Okay, yeah. It didn't make sense to me to hope for the best and then put everything into this one cart yeah uh, you know so that kind of I, I guess i was old enough to know not to do that right right um there are people i've shared that story to think i'm crazy for making that choice because we were pretty much there i mean yeah. we were we were having you know we had a decent manager and it was it was happening yeah but it just didn't feel right you know it was too much of a gamble i was 25 at that point i was kind of aging myself out of that anyway yeah uh, as far as being able to do that, you know, right. usually are much younger in that world, right. that more conventional world. Um, and it just didn't seem like it was going to work out. And it, inevitably it didn't. I mean, the band for other issues didn't last very long beyond that point. Um, so I've never done it full time, but I've had a hell of a lot of fun working with a lot of very cool people over the years. Yeah. Uh, you know, but yeah, it all started by the time I was in. You know, I was still I was still a kid playing yeah. in bars, basically with <laughs> guys in their twenties when I was, you know, I was fourteen. That's crazy. How, so, how did you hook up with the the Misfits? And that was the the after, uh, right after Danzig. Well, not right after, but uh, well, this was early '95. Yeah. This was right when they finished their court case with him right. and had the name again, yeah. and it was. Jerry and Doyle at that point starting yeah. over. Yeah. Um, I had met them because they, they were right down the road from where I grew up. Yeah. And, you know, when the Misfits had broken up in 83, um, those guys who had always worked for their family's machine shop yeah. pretty much did that full time. They had a they had a band in the 80s, late 80s, called Christ the Conqueror. Yeah, I had that cassette. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, what it is. I yeah, mean, yeah. it's that... It's them and Jeff Scott Soto from Ingve's band doing Christian power metal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that, you know, didn't really go that far. But yeah. um, I was at that time, I was a senior in high school and I was putting together uh, VFW hall shows, oh, okay. you know, as one does at that age. Yeah. And um, I knew they were in the area. I had a friend who was actually a good friend of theirs and had, you know, worked on Doyle's amps and guitars and stuff. And I, you know, I, I asked him, I said, you know, do you think these, because I was pretty delusional being 17. I'm like, yeah. you know, do you, these guys would, you know, do a show at my, my VFW hall where I'm right. booking these, you know, high school bands. Right. And my friend, uh, his name was Mike. He said, yeah, well, here's Jerry's number. Give him a call. See what he says. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I called him up and, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, uh, have you ever met Jerry? I haven't, no. Yeah, he's a pretty Greg Arias character, yeah, as you can imagine. Yeah. 
you know, his voice just filled the room. Right. Actually, can fill an entire neighborhood. <laughs> so, you know, I call him up, and he's like, you know, hey, you know, the whole, the whole thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I explained to him why I'm calling, and he said, well, you know, we're not really looking to play a Legion Hall right now, but we're actually getting the band back. You know, yeah. there's going to be a Misfits, but we're looking for a drummer. And I cut him off. I said, well, I play drums. Yeah. So what do you know? I said, well, I know everything. You know, I know every Misfits. I yeah. didn't, you right, know. Right. He's like, well, great. We'll come over Saturday, whatever it was. Yeah. Going, oh, shit. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I ended up learning um, prior to that trip up to their machine shop, I learned probably two dozen songs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not the hardest songs in the world to play either. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I went up there and they had uh, Robo's old kit, oh, which they... Crazy. It added these monstrous spikes to, right. and it looked—it was insane. It looked like something out of Road Warrior, <laughs> and they were using the four, the regular four toms as rack toms. Oh, it was wow. just, <laughs> and all the Misfits amps were there, but the Crimson Ghost, you know, yeah. painted on. It was just Jerry and I jamming, and we went through Martian, and he got a big smile on his face. He goes, "What else do you know?" I said, "Well, I know pretty much whatever you want to play." Right. Um, except the Earth AD stuff, that was yeah. a little bit of my abilities at that. But the simple, you know, four four walk among us stuff was a breeze. Yeah. There were like three or four songs into it, and then Doyle walks in. Yeah. And uh, he came over, shook my hand, introduced himself, and we played the three of us for, you know, another forty five minutes or so. Yeah. I later found out that Doyle was there the whole time, but wanted to hear if I was any good before <laughs> walking in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he, you know, both of those guys are great. And Jerry's like, well, why don't you come back in a couple more days? We're trying to um, audition singers. And they had the drummer who they ended up using for five or six years, Dr. Chud. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was already in the picture. He was basically their drummer, but he was also an engineer. Right. So they were really focused on getting a singer at that point, right. obviously. Yeah. Huge role to fill. So um, how they worked it out was that anybody who came up to audition on vocals, mm -hmm. whether or not they sucked, they walked away with an eight-track demo of them fronting the Misfits. That's you know? crazy. Yeah, kind of a thank you for showing yeah, up. And, yeah. You know, most of the guys were shit. They just really flew over there or drove up there to meet those guys. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but Chud was behind the board yeah. doing mixes, and then if they felt there was a singer who was decent. They would listen back to what Chud recorded and kind of analyze it and you know, yeah. take it from there. Yeah. So I did a, I did a bunch of those um, rehearsals with them as people were coming in and out. Yeah. They had a couple of drummers who'd come in and, and try out as well. Yeah. And it was through those rehearsal days I met Danny from Electric Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, who was just a friend of theirs, and yeah. I got to that whole crew. I ended mm -hmm. up playing in F for a bit. Um. So that's how that happened. And, uh, you know, Jerry told me, he said, look, you know, you're 17, you're still in school. Yeah. Uh, this is a rough industry. We've made plenty of mistakes. Yeah. You're a little too young for this. Yeah. It, 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 and yet it's just not the world for you right now. Right. But, you know, like 40 songs and we need somebody <laughs> to keep while Chud's working these, yeah. these recordings. So if you want to come up and, and serve as our rehearsal drummer for the, for until we find a, a, a good singer, yeah. 
you know, you know, we love to have you. So I would go up there after high school, you know, three times a week for a few months. Yeah. And then eventually they found Michael, the guy who became Michael Graves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually there when he auditioned. Yeah. But then, you know, they, they kind of took some time deciding on if, if he was going to be the guy. They tried to get Dave Banyan in the band. Actually. Oh, really? That would have been. And uh, for whatever reason, that didn't work out. Yeah. Uh, and I remember they were talking about possibly getting Mackie to play drums. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously that, for whatever reason, that right. didn't move forward. So they ended up getting Mike. Yeah. And then at that point, Chud kind of settled into his natural position being the drummer. Yeah. And then that was the lineup they had that did those those two albums in the 90s. Huh. Um, but what's really cool is even to this day, I get contacted by people who have a Misfits bootleg and... They recorded 1995, and they'll ask if I'm on it. And I'll say, you know, it's a very good chance I am, because yeah. I was there for a lot of those demo recordings. And, of course, when someone's going to walk out of a rehearsal studio with them singing for the Misfits, you know that shit's going to get bootlegged. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, so I've got some recordings. You know, I've, I've posted some things over the years, um, on even on MySpace, which yeah. is how far back. <laughs> yeah. Um, but those recordings are out there. And then, you know, when Chud became the drummer, when it was pretty much figured out he was going to be the guy, yeah. they kept me on to help promote a show they wanted to do at an amusement park in Vernon, New Jersey, called Action Park. Yeah. Um, they wanted to have, like, a big family celebration show at the end of their first tour, which was the Resurrection Tour in 96. So I put that whole show together. It was an all-day show, local bands mainly, opening up. And then the Misfits came on at night. I think we had about 4,000 people show up for that show. And it was at that show that Geffen turned up. And I I believe the story goes that was the evening that they started talking about signing the Geffen for the American Psycho record. So... Yeah, I was kind of ground four for that era, and that's why I always have a love for the Michael Graves albums, because yeah, I was literally, I was in a room when those songs were being written. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I listened to those records and have very fond memories of those guys. Um, I, I, I still keep in touch with Chud yeah. uh, pretty regularly. I hear from Michael every so often still. Yeah. Um, ran into Doyle about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, he brought his band up here to New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. We hung out for a bit on the bus. Nice. Uh, Jerry, I haven't seen for a couple of years, but yeah. you know, that's kind of how that whole thing happened. It was just, um, you know, not being afraid to hear the word no. Yeah, yeah. You know, I could have called Jerry and he could have said, you know, who the fuck are you? Right, yeah. No, I know. <laughs> but he didn't. Yeah. You know, um, and I wouldn't have known that had I not made the call. So yeah, the exactly. important. You know, make the goddamn call because there's, there's only a 50 50 shot you're going to fail. Yeah. Um, and those are pretty decent odds. So yeah. it's always trying to hold your nose and jump into something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting to be 17, um, going to school, yeah. finishing up classes senior year. I just got my driver's license. So I'd go from school up the road and, and play Mishkit songs until the time. <laughs> With the you know, and that was my senior year of high school. That's crazy. Did uh, and is this how you met Bobby Steele through that? I mean, he was uh, not really through the Misfits because I was still booking these hall shows and stuff yeah. um, during this whole time. 
and there used to be um, a Misfits message board. This goes back, you know, 25 years, um, called Misfits Central. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, it was called the Misfits Bible. Yeah. It was like an email thing right. that people add on to. And Bobby was always there. Mm-hmm. And at that time, he had a band called Times Square. Okay. Uh, Dave from the Devil Dogs playing drums. Yeah. I don't know if you remember the Devil Dogs or not. From- no, nope. Yeah, they were like a, a kind of a biggest band there for a while in New York. You know, kind of like a Johnny Thunders kind of thing. Okay. Um, you know, it's just great. They had rock and roll. Yeah. Um, they had Dave from the Devil Dogs on drums. Okay. And, and uh, uh, he had a female bass or female guitarist named Jill Matthews, who was a Golden Gloves uh, boxing champion. Okay. Um, and they were kind of a cool band. And so he was kind of taking a break from the undead. He was doing this band called Times Square. Yeah. And so he was promoting that. Um, so I emailed him. I said, hey, you know, I, I book hall shows. I work with Jerry Doyle. You know, would love to talk to you about maybe booking a Times Square show. So he called me right away, and we ended up talking for about an hour. And then, oddly enough, I think it was actually that night or maybe the following evening, um, I went to this place in New Jersey again, this place, Obsessions, to see Irie Vaughn play. Yeah. Um, Irie at the time had a blues band called Big House. Huh. Okay. And uh, he was playing there, um, not doing anything remotely close to, you know, the Sam Hain or Danzig stuff. Right. Um, but Bobby turned up. You know, he's a he's a hard guy to miss in the yeah. crowd. Yeah. So we got bullshitting pretty much the whole night, and we just became friends. And I, I booked a couple Times Square gigs. Mm-hmm. And then uh, fast forward about a year, um, a mutual friend of ours was doing a benefit show in, in somewhere down the Jersey Shore uh, for uh, I think it was his mother okay. or maybe his aunt, who was having uh, she was having trouble with uh, battling cancer. So they did a big benefit show and they asked Bobby to play, but Bobby didn't have a band. Right. You know there was that at that point. So me and uh, one of the guitar players in one of the bands I was playing at the time, a band called Broken Heroes, he volunteered to play bass, this guy Anthony, and we played that show as the undead, yeah. kind of with, without rehearsal, without anything. Yeah. And that was early 98. And then uh, a few months later, Bobby got the undead moving again, and he asked me to play drums and brought in a friend I was I knew from college, this guy Ronnie, uh, to play bass, and that lineup lasted uh, about a year or so. Yes. And then um, he ended up getting another band together because I couldn't tour. Because yeah. I, you know, I, I was, oh, like I said, I was always kind of focused on the real world too. Right. Um, so I, you know, I was in college. I was, you know, working towards my degree, and I didn't want to take a month off. You know. Right. So he got another band together. I think he got the guys from the Independence to to play the rhythm section from the Independence. I don't know if you remember them. No. They were like um, a horror ska band. Joey Ramone used to manage them. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they were real, another New York band that was pretty big. I think right. they were from. Anyway, so they're they're part of that whole scene at the time. Right. And got those guys, and they were Road Dogs. So. Bobby went off and did, you know, that version of the band. And then I came back in the undead in 2002. Um, At that time, he had Joey Image from the Misfits playing drums. Joey and Bobby had some sort of a problem. I'm still not entirely sure what happened. But Bobby, I mean, um, Bobby kicked out Joey. 
So we needed a drummer, so I came back um, in 2002, and I left again because I moved to L.A. Yeah. Then when I came back to Jersey in, in 2006, I rejoined the Undead, did another two years with Bobby, and then when I moved up here, I left the band again. Yeah. So roughly 10 years, you know, with gaps in between. Yeah. But, yeah, so I did that. That was kind of, that wasn't really directly because of the Misfits. He just happened right. to be kind of world, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was kind of funny because, you know, having known Jerry for many years and having worked with Bobby, um, they're both very unique individuals. And it right. was very clear to me why that didn't work. Right, right, yeah. yeah <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, I mean, why that lineup was not going to last because they're both very... Strong um, personalities. And... Oh, very strong personalities. And I, it's like oil and water, those two. And I somehow was able to work with them both. I'm still not sure how. <laughs> Um, you know. too, his, you know, his, oh yeah, I mean, and that's 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 why it's so combustible because um, knowing the personalities involved, it's inevitable there would be some sort of friction always in the back. And then even with the newer guys over the years, it's like the generation has carried on, you know, with the same sort of thing. But uh, you know, interesting group of guys certainly, and especially for me being a younger kid. Yeah. Being kind of exposed to that world that early was pretty surreal. Yeah. Um, I'm always very thankful to Jerry and Bobby yeah. for you know giving me those opportunities. I had some amazing times in the Undead. You know, we headlined CBGBs back when headlining CBGBs mattered, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know filled the place. You know, yeah. and that was a great memory. Um, that was in the '90s. You know, that was really when the New York scene had its last big gas. Yeah, you know, you yeah. had all these great clubs. You had Coney Allen High, you had the Continental, you had the Wetlands, yeah. Oh, yeah. you had TVs, and there was a lot going on. And then after 9-11, that all went away. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that was sort of mid to late 90s, all that stuff was happening. And, you know, the Undead was still drawing really well at that time. Yeah. So it was a cool experience to play shows at that level, um, you know. And, and I'm always grateful to Bobby, and I, I still keep in touch with him kind of loosely. You know, yeah. he's, uh, you know, he's doing well. He's he's remarried. He's born again. Oh, you know, okay. he's on a different kind of path. Uh, yeah. But he seems very positive. Seems very happy and content. And you know, that's all I ever want for any of those guys is to. Um, you know, be happy in what they're doing. So that's, he appears to be very pleased with uh, where he is with that band. And, you know, um, I would never discount working with Bobby again because uh, as as crazy as it can be with him at times, because he's a pretty intense character. Yeah. Uh, music is so damn good in that band. And yeah, yeah. You know, I'd love to, uh, I would always welcome the opportunity to play those songs again, yeah. for sure. And uh, and then you did stuff with Pigface. How, how how did you get involved with with that project? Uh, Pigface thing. I met Martin Atkins um, in '93. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a weird thing. I was I was on vacation with my family at the time in New Orleans. Yeah. And I was by that point I was already way 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 into Killing Joke and Pill and right. various things Martin was involved in. And I was walking down somewhere in the French Quarter, past a record store window. They had a huge poster for that evening's Pigface show. They were playing a place called the New Orleans Music Hall. 
And I was already wearing a Killing Joke shirt. I'm like, well, this is kind of kismet, you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, I went to the show that night, and that lineup of that band was incredible. Yeah. Um, many of those guys I ended up playing with myself, you know, in Big Face years later. And um, that was a really great night. And I met Martin out in the street, you know, just as a fan. Yeah. And we ended up crossing paths every year or two from that point for for reasons. You know, I tried to book, you know, Martin at at that time had a label called Invisible Records. Yep. And he was always doing package tours and things. And I was trying to book him, you know, and one of his package tours at the Legion Hall I was booking at, but we could never get the, the dates to line up. Um, but I was always kind of in touch with Martin. And then, um, you know, fast forward to 2000, I'm out of school. Um, I'm freelancing at that time for a music paper in New Jersey called the Aquarian Weekly. Yeah. And Martin at that time had just put out the first Damage Manual record, oh, which was, record. yeah, yeah him, Ja Wobble and Chris Connolly yeah. and Jordy. So I interviewed him for that, and I figured, you know, I've got the guy on the phone. Again, it was another one like a Jerry Only deal. Like you can only, you can only um, ask. You know, right. if you don't ask, you don't know. Yeah. You know, and he was aware I was a drummer because you know, we had had conversations about things like that in the past. So I just point blank asked him. I said, "Hey, can I ever play in Pig Face?" And he said, "Yeah, of course." <laughs> <laughs> so um, the following year, they went out for their 10th anniversary tour. And, uh, you know, Martin said, hey, come down to the New York show, you know, because they were playing the Limelight, which was at that time, you know, still a big venue. You know, it was kind of the the final days of that whole scene. This was post 9-11. I don't think the Limelight lasted very long after that that night anyway, maybe six months tops. Um. So I, I showed up at the show and, you know, I, I ran into Martin. I said, hey, so what do you want me to do? You know, and he kind of gave me this look like I was from Mars. I said, so I guess I'm just going to win, it, right? right? You know, so there's no set list right. idea or anything. And I think I ended up playing six or seven songs that night. Oh. Um, yeah, and it was a really good lineup that year as well. Chris Haskett from the Rollins Band oh, was yeah. on the tour. Yeah, he's, um, he's a What's that? He's a monster, Haskett, Chris Haskett. Oh, yeah, and a really nice guy, too. Yeah, nice. Super nice guy. And, uh, you know, so that was pretty, because I love the Rollins band, yeah. so that was a pretty role for me. Yeah. So um, that was my kind of start doing the Pig Face thing. And, again, I've never toured with them, but okay. I've done this over the years. Um, did the 25th anniversary shows in Chicago in 2016. Yeah. Did York show on the last tour they did, um, oh, which yeah. Did, yeah. yeah, which oddly enough was um, when the clock struck midnight that evening. It was exactly 18 years to the day of that first Pig Face show at the Limelight. Oh, that's awesome! Which was also in New York, and you know that's one. That's really why I wanted to do it because I thought it'd be an interesting bookend. You know, to have an 18-year span. Oh, right. in the same yeah. Um, and oddly enough, there was another Rollins band connection that evening because Andrew Weiss turned up. Oh, okay. Another Jersey guy. He, he hadn't done Pig Face since 92, 93. Yeah. Um, Martin had run into him at a, I think it was a flipper show. Yeah. He's like, well, you should come out and play some shows. So he, he turned up at, at this New York gig. No one knew 
you know, until that day that was going to go down. Hmm. And Andrew didn't know any of the songs, you know, but he played the whole set, yeah. you know, which is very pig face, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so that's that's how that happened. And, you know, what's really nice about pig face is being introduced to so many different people because it's this ever-changing competition of musicians and people sort of splinter off very naturally into yeah. their own. Situation. So I'm working on a project right now um, with several people from Pigface. Yeah. A recording project. We've been training tracks around for three years now. Yeah. Um, that's going to be a, a single we're doing. It's going to be a dog rescue charity single. Oh, cool. Um, but we've got four drummers on it. You know, at least three bass players. You know, <laughs> and. Awesome. And uh, we'll be able to hopefully have that out later this year. We keep adding people to yeah. it. We just um, I just sent the track over to I don't know if you remember the band Prong. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, I've got um, Troy Gregory and Ted Parsons from Prong oh, playing wow. on. Nice. And it's the first time those two have worked together on a song yeah. um, since '92, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was kind of a happy accident. I was just yeah. talking to. Parsons one day, and I mentioned I was doing this project, which, which also features this guy, Martin King, who's a good friend of mine. Um, I met him through Pigface, but he was also a test department out in England. Yeah. And Ted's a huge test department fan, so he's like, oh, can I play on it too? You know? <laughs> so I, got to, I somehow got Ted Parsons to play on the song. Um, so it's kind of grown from there. So uh, that's one example of how the pig face thing sort of grows because you meet people, you hit it off and then you go off and do your own thing. It's yeah. very kind of endless what people can do because there's so many, um, interesting musicians to draw from. Yeah. You know, and of course I've got to thank Martin for, uh, you know, initially saying yes, 18 years ago to bring me into that. Yeah. And yeah, it, that world. It's been a lot of fun. You know, I mean, playing with somebody like Randy Blythe, yeah, I know, right? God, you know, and then, uh, you know, seeing him work on stage is is really insane. Yeah. Um, you know, just the exposure to so much very unique talent in one one stage situation is yeah. pretty amazing. You know, then to be watching Randy and then to the other side of me is Ann Ashram came FDM doing his thing. <laughs> like, oh, shit, I end up here, you know? That's going to so be surreal. Yeah, it definitely is. And of course, you've got the personalities backstage, all these different people colliding, you know. And, right. Um, you know, the backstage is often more interesting than what happens on stage, yeah. you know. The dynamics are very interesting to watch. And you, know, you have, you know, obviously different, different genders, different languages, different um, life experiences, different ages, yeah. all sort of you know, colliding on, on this one particular night, you know, it's, it's, it's always fascinating to do. Yeah. Uh, so as far as journalism, when did, uh, so you said, you know, as a kid, you used to keep these family trees of bands and, and you would, you know, sort of study music, like, like people like me do, you know, where you want to know all everything about the members and the album and, and all that stuff. So, when did that sort of become a thing for you that you that you could do professionally? Well, I put out my own zine when I was in 
fifth or sixth grade. Actually, yeah, I think it was sixth grade. Okay. I was already, you know, crazy into the music stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that was just about, you know, the, the hard rock bands. <laughs> right. I and It wasn't very good. It was just basically, you know, regurgitating things I'd hear on MTV News right. or something. Yeah. Uh, but that was the start of it. And then um, when I was in high school and the college, especially in college, I would freelance. And my first interview with a musician of note was uh, the country singer, Billy Ray Cyrus. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yankee breaky hard guy. Yeah. Miley's dad. Yeah, Miley, yeah, Miley's dad. I know. <laughs> and uh, I interviewed him. He was playing the fair in town, you right. know, when I was in Jersey. But that was my first paid newspaper cover story. Huh. So, you know, I, I was always interested in writing about music. And then um, when I got out of school, I was uh, in need of money, obviously. So I ended up um, working at a KFC, of all things, while freelancing. Because I was running for the music newspaper, I mentioned when I talked to Martin. Um, but from that, I got my first um, uh, really kind of significant cover story i'd say it was with sam hain oh, nice. uh, steve zing is an old friend of mine yeah um from way back from the misfits days yeah. and uh i went to steve's house and did an interview with him and that was the cover that was when they came back and did the box set and the reunion tour yeah first time around yeah. back in the 90s yeah. uh so from there i got a full-time job working for a magazine publishing company that did different kinds of magazines. Mm -hmm. Their leading publication at that time was a music magazine, okay. um, which was produced for uh, a record store chain on yeah. the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And did that for a few months and ran, you know, ran that show. And that was awesome. My yeah. first interview at the gate professionally where I was able to pay my bills yeah. was with Nikki Six from Motley Crue. Oh, wow. I interviewed Ingve that time frame. Um, try, I, quite a few people actually. Uh, Thomas Fisher from Celtic Frost. Oh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. A lot of pop people. Lincoln Park back when they weren't shit. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. they were starting. Um, you know, just just a lot of different bands of different genres. A lot of R and B people. Yeah. Um, interviewed Coc oh, uh, with Pep. What he at a, at a hotel bar in New York. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of it for me. And then, um, you know, I thought I, I, I'd struck it big. Um, but this was also the age of Napster. So yeah. within about six months of starting that job, the record store chain I was working for started to bleed money. Yeah. So they didn't produce the magazine anymore. Right. So. I ended up um, covering a different industry entirely because right. it became a matter of, you know, if I wanted to still eat and work at that company, I had yeah. to not cover music anymore. So right. I, you know, moved away from doing that as part of a full-time job. Then when I was in LA, um, I ran a poker publication for really? a couple of years. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And that was just a matter of needing to eat yeah, <laughs> in yeah. LA. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Um, I still can't shuffle a deck of cards, you know, but somehow <laughs> discovering the World Series of Poker and stuff when that stuff is really big. Yeah. Um, so, but I started publishing my own books on music. Yeah. 
Um, and from there, I uh, started a website. Actually, my then wife gave me a website for a birthday one year. Oh, nice. She said, here's a website, get to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I started doing interviews and stuff from that, and yeah. that kind of exploded, and that got really big at one time. And, mm-hmm. you know, due to other things in life, I haven't been keeping up with it as much as I would like to. Yeah. Um, but that's still an avenue for me to, to write about music. Yeah. Um, but I, I started doing my own publishing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, small quantities of things. Yeah. Um, I did a compilation of interviews back in uh, 2010, 2010, called From Satan to Sabbath. Yeah. And that was various metal interviews I'd done over oh, the years yes. that I I put that together. Um, that did pretty well. That ended up being added to the library at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame oh, out in Cleveland. Yeah, so um, you know, just just being willing to try things has always sort of worked out well for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, but really, the music writing is kind of like the music playing. You know, it's it's done for the love of it and not as a commercially viable option. Right. You know, I do put a price tag on some things I do because there is some element of overhead involved in these things. Yeah. But I don't really do anything with with money in mind in that respect. You yeah. know, I'd rather keep a purity to those things and not have money corrupted. You yeah, know, think- have the incentive. I don't need to do that to make money. Yeah. Uh, I think it gives it more uh, like res- respect too with that. Just and there's just more because you know the person's actually just doing it for love rather than just shitting out another interview with someone. You know, like yeah, yeah. I, I've never, I've never used anything I've done as far as writing about music as a conveyor belt yeah. mentality. Yeah. Um, my website, I write about whatever I want. If I want to interview Katrina from Katrina and the Waves, I'm going to fucking do it. Right. If I want to interview Dark Funeral the next day, I'm going to do that too. Right. You know, that's what the site is. You yeah. know, my my readership numbers are all over the map. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I write what interests me. Yeah. Um, so I can't even say it's a metal site. I can't yeah. say it's a pop site. It's a whatever site. Yeah. Um, you know, some things I'll post get more attention than others because of that. Um, you know, it's been suggested to me that my readership is high enough to where I, I really should better selling ads for it. Yeah. But I've always shied away from that because yeah. I like to run my own ship. Because there's, there's so many areas in life that neither of us have control over, you know, right. like this pandemic, for example. Yeah. Um, it's nice to have control over something. Right. So if I want to publish twice a day, I can do that. If right. I want to publish a month, I can do that. Exactly. And you don't have that luxury when somebody else is paying for your services. Yeah. Uh, I've always believed that when someone pays you for something, you deliver. Yeah. So I'd rather not have it over my head. Yeah. You know, although the readership at this point is well into the seven figures. Nice. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I again, it was just a blogger account and still is. You know. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's done pretty well, but I'd much rather just do what I want to do with it and yeah. 
not have to be beholden to anybody. You know, you you know, it's not worth a few hundred bucks I'd probably scrape together right. for somebody. Yeah. Um, I'd rather not produce or, or um, promote their shitty band. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather promote something I like. Now, I like a lot of different stuff, so the right. chances of being in my net are pretty high. Yeah. But I would never want to just say, I'm doing this because somebody's paid for yeah. it. You know, yeah. or, you know, there there are more lucrative ways to be a whore than do it for a music site. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, once someone starts putting money into it, you know, they might go back and go, hey, you know, you had this interview seven years ago, and this guy said this thing that might have been a misogynist statement, and, uh, you know, can you take that down or, you know, or something like that. So having yeah. full control is is, uh, is definitely the way to go with, especially with Yeah, and, and with these days in the in the era of cancel culture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, where the, the knee-jerk reaction is, you know, we're going to fuck you with your sponsors. You yeah, know? yeah. I, I can still maintain the ability to tell them to go fuck themselves. Don't read my site. Yeah. You know, and I give a platform to pretty much anybody I choose. You know, um, one of the most popular uh, popular pieces of content I've ever published on that site would be anytime I put Striper up there. Yeah. Christian rock band. Yeah. And, and, and I'm friendly with those guys. You yeah. know, I have always been very well by that camp. Yeah. Um, but I'll also you know, interview Dark Funeral or, or do right. a review of Funeral or, or um, you know, the exact opposite of that spectrum. Yeah, yeah. you posted uh, a, a conversation, or a thread that you, from Michael Sweet's uh, Facebook, I think, maybe a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an interesting guy. He's yeah. very much a uh, provocateur. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Online and... Um, I respect him a lot because he he likes to challenge his audience a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's cool to see. Um, that. And he gets a lot more fire from his fan base than he does from the outside. Yeah. Um, very punk rock in spirit yeah. with a lot of things he does. Um, I've always respected that. I mean, I've always liked band anyway. Yeah. They were yeah. one of those, you know they were one of those hair bands I got into when I was a kid. You know. Yeah. yeah. So I still listen to those guys quite often, and I'm sure uh, when the next record comes out, I'll be talking to Michael again. Yeah. Um, so they'll inevitably, well, hopefully, will be another bit of Striper content on that website. Yeah. But just for the hell of it, I may follow that up with um, some extreme black metal band or something. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I can do that without being threatened, you know? Yeah, exactly. Now, how when you first started doing uh, interviews with people, there must have been some early ones where you interviewed someone you might have been a big fan of. Like I know you, you, you've, you've talked to Bill Ward a number of times, and you've, you've remained friends with him. And uh, so, what is that like initially when you're when you try to separate being like a big fan of someone and be professional and, and respectful? <laughs> you mean avoiding being a total fanboy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh. Well, I, for me, it's never been about talking to somebody because I'm necessarily a fan. Yeah. Um, what I mean by that is I, I, I need to have a genuine interest in what they're doing, mm -hmm. besides from just loving them as, as a fan. You know, mm -hmm. for example, when I first interviewed Bill, I wanted to talk to him about his solo work, which um, in many cases I enjoy more 
and the stuff with Black Sabbath. Um, And very, very, very few people know about his artistic endeavors and his whole... So I was just fascinated on an artistic level Mm -hmm. where some of the things came to be or how how he arrived at certain points with that. So I approached him not as a fan, more as somebody who was really genuinely curious about how he built things musically. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when I've spoken with people who I'm really, really into, because mm-hmm. I, I want to get more into the creative process and not because I want to interview them because I'm a huge fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it does It does sort of obviously blend into each other. When I interviewed Suzy Quattro last year, yeah. I, was, I was a total fan girl, you yeah. know, couldn't believe I was talking to Susie Quattro. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about genuinely where she was artistically at that yeah, point. Yeah. So, uh, it, it, also being an art, you know, being a musician myself, and I'm certainly not Bill Ward level or, right. or Susie Quattro level, but I do know what it means to be in this world. Yeah. So, um, there is an element of artist to artist in some respect. Mm-hmm. Although the scales are obviously tipped very much in their favor, right, right. Um, that's how I approach it, you know, because I, I I know enough about that world to relate to things um, beyond just you know sort of that. Remember that old SNL Chris Farley interview when he, he was talking to McCartney? Yes, yeah. And he's like, "Remember that time you were in the Beatles? Wasn't that cool?" <laughs> you know, like avoiding that and right. just being like. Right. Well, where were you going with this, and how did this impact you know, your worldview? There, I'm just right. curious about these people as creative forces. Yeah. Um. You know, but but certainly with Bill, I mean, he he always has so much to say. Yeah. That's of value, yeah. just on a human level. Yeah. Um, I'm more fascinated in talking to Bill as as Bill. Yeah. You know, yeah. as a yeah. person about just his worldview than I am. You know, as much as I love talking to him about, you know, how did he get the drum sound on this track? You know, right. it's more about also just his worldview as a person and yeah. about how to get on with things in life and helping other people. And yeah. um, so I try, I, I try to talk. You know, I, I guess it comes down to I, I, because I've been successful in my own life of knocking around people of note for so long. Yeah. You know, being in the van with the Misfits guys right. um, in, the, in the early days of their comeback or, you know, working with Martin Atkins or, you know, having Rollins write something for my website. Yeah. You know, it's that I don't really see these people as perhaps others might view them. Yeah. Because for me, they're just all guys getting on with a gig. Right. And my gig happens to intersect with theirs at yeah. certain points, yeah. you know. And it always seems to me that the most successful musicians have the same mindset, right. you know. Um, it, it's the ones who buy into their own nonsense yeah. and have problems. And typically it's, it's the middle, middle tier bands and the cult musicians have the worst attitudes. Yeah. The higher you get up the ladder, the friendlier and more accessible in giving yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the attitude that helps get those people to that level. Yeah, yeah. So 
always just kind of treated people the same way, you know. Um, you know, if I like a local punk band, you know, who's doing great things, um, in my mind, they're up there with, with a band filling stadiums, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I was out in London um, playing a gig with uh, a band called the Lady Boys, which is Martin King from Test Department and Pigface. Okay. It is a band they get together every so often and do uh, a charity gig for dog and cat rescue, for okay. example. They'll rent out a venue and just have a party, and it's it's right. a cover band thing, you know. Yeah. Um, the bass player in that band, um, you know, used to play for thirty thousand people when he was the bass player for the Cure. Huh. You know, and we're all in a basement vamping out to <laughs> to uh, um, nightclubbing right. by Iggy. That's awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So we're all, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's just the guy getting on with what they got to do, or a girl getting they've got to do. Yeah. Uh, so I've always approached a very workmanlike in that respect. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, and, and frankly, you know, as a journalist and, and as somebody who's worked with, with people who are known, you know, uh, behind the scenes, the, the more you know about people, the less impressed you are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, um, so I, 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 at this stage of my life, I, I am very rarely starstruck by yeah. anybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're just getting on with what they have to get on with, and yeah. that's what brought me to them is the fact that I'm getting on with what I have to get on with. Yeah, yeah. And uh, finally, you have a uh, a book that you just released uh, a couple months ago called uh, 3 a.m. Girls. So mm -hmm. uh, let's, let's talk about how that book came about. Uh, well, that book came about because I ended up living it. Um, I, I haven't published a book in 10 years, yeah. um, until this past March when I put this out mm -hmm. and it's not a music book, yeah. you know, it's the autobiographical work and that book came to be as a result of the 2019 I lived. Yeah. I ended up starting last year, uh, newly divorced, yeah. um, in my early forties and suddenly finding myself doing a lot of things that were not in my best interest right. with people who were also not doing things in their best interest. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, to, to kind of use a very trite way to describe it, you know, it was very sex, drugs and rock and roll yeah. there for a few. Yeah. And then, um, as I'm, living these things on writing about them because yeah. writing has been a way to process and just Definitely. to, you know, I'm a, I do keep journals and things to, right. you know, um, just keep track of life, yeah. you know? So it was kind of writing this book, you know, having an idea of what it might be. And then, um, the entire course of the book changed when I, um, completely unexpectedly at my dad, um, ended up, becoming reacquainted with a girl I used to live with years ago. Yeah. Old, an old roommate. Mm -hmm. um, who, and this is all in the book, but, you know, she actually uh, smacked me around. Yeah. And got me uh, a hell of a lot more on track than I had been. Nice. So uh, the second part of the book kind of uh, reflects that. You yeah. know, it, 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 went from, it went from something I thought would be one way yeah. and then came something else um but it's it's the most honest thing i've ever written you know yeah. it's it's 
drawn from things that took place uh, with real people. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, when I when I put it out, I sort of held my breath because it's it's not an easy read. Right. In some cases, yeah. um, but it, it's it's a real one, and it came out the same day that Trump announced the national. Uh, state of emergency. Oh yeah, so March thirteenth, maybe. Uh, March thirteenth. I yeah. thought I would just cheeky by putting it out on a Friday the thirteenth, March. But then that's when the fucking world caught fire. So <laughs> um, it's been kind of strange for me to yeah. promote a book during these times. Right. Um, you know, it's a, it's you know, it, it's hard to know what what anything. You know, yeah. what I'm, you know, publicizing something. It's hard to know what to say and how to say it these yeah. days. Yeah. I think people. Uh, I think people want stuff to uh, read and, and, and absorb. Yeah, well, that it was kind of interesting because I knew of a lot of bands that were putting out albums around the same time. Yeah, and having a lot of conversations with bands and their publicists, like, what the hell do we do? Yeah, yeah. And the prevailing sentiment among all these people I was speaking to was, you know, art right now especially is important yeah 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 it's worth just letting people know you're doing something yeah um you know so i promoted the book uh, as much as possible yeah. well I, within reason i don't want to be crass about yeah, it you yes. know right um and i also recognize that it's material that may not be suitable for everybody's taste right right because there's a lot of very raw yeah. elements um but it's done pretty well, all things considered. Yeah. Um, the moment I'm dealing with some manufacturing and, and distribution issues, right. um, all COVID related. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm hoping to have those resolved because uh, at the time, for the time being, I'm encouraging people actually not to order the book online. Yeah. Um, because of a number of issues. Yeah. But I do have a Facebook page, which I like to give out if I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that was the thing I was going to ask. Like, where uh, where would people be able to buy the book? Well, uh, the the best way to get information on it would be my public facing Facebook page, which yeah. is facebook.com slash Joel Gaston official, and that's J O E L. Last name is G A U S T E N. Also, my website is joelgaston.com. Um, I'll post the most current information about the book on that Facebook page. Yeah. Um, it appears that within the next week or so, some of these issues I've been having will be resolved finally. Yeah. Uh, but generally speak, speaking, people can buy it really where, wherever books are sold online. So nice. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, there's a website called Lulu, L-U-L-U, yeah. oh, yeah. which yeah, it's a self-publishing site. That's actually where the book it was generated from. Yeah, um, you can get it there as well. So uh, this book in particular, I tried to make the distribution a lot more accessible than some of the other things I've done. Right, uh, and it was going very well. It was actually charting in a few places, but then this whole pandemic right. carried on. Yeah, a lot of the places that are handling the sale of books right now are obviously operating with skeleton crews. Yeah, so you know. A lot of things are falling through the cracks and people aren't getting the damn book, you yeah. know, because they, they have to wait a month and the wrong book arrives. Right. And, yeah. You know, so I'm actually encouraging people for the moment to kind of put the brakes on buying it until yeah. 
I'm able to work these things out, and I will post on my Facebook page. Um, yeah, we're good to go. Yeah. Here are the links. You know, um, I'm also able to offer some discounts now and then. Yeah. Off the cover price through some of the channels I use. Nice. So that Facebook page really is the hub of where people yeah. can get the most information on it. And I, I also, I priced it pretty cheaply. It's uh, yeah. $7. Yeah. Um, and I did that because um, you, you've seen it. So, you know, yeah. the vibe I was going for was sort of that older dime store, noir, yeah. Yeah, yeah. old feel to it. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and those books are always pretty cheap and dirty. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. um, that's kind of how I form, formatted this book to be. So it's, it's you know, it costs cheaper than a pack of good cigarettes, you know. <laughs> yep. And, you know, hopefully these distribution issues will be sorted out soon and yeah. I can uh, you know, let people know where, where to get it, you know, in good conscience. I mean, yeah. People can order it now and I can't reach oh, everybody right. yeah, to hold off. Yeah. But at least within my channels, I let people know. It's a little hairy right now, so until they're from me, lay off on buying the book, which yeah. kind of sucks to have to say, but there's also worse news in this world right now than my silly book not being. <laughs> I know, right? I, I know. When, I, when this thing first started, I was like, I don't know if I want to keep doing the, you know, but then, you know, am I going to, like, contact someone and be like, hey, do you just want to do the podcast and talk about Iron Maiden for three hours? You know, while people <laughs> die. But then I started seeing there's just more content out there and you know, and even me myself, I'm like, I need something to listen to or read. So, I thought my little uh, contribution to it would can continue on, and people have been receptive, and I've had some cool guests. So, I'm I'm glad you were able to uh, add to this too, because it's I've, I've been wanting to have you on for a bit. So, yeah, yeah, man, and and I can't thank you enough for for having me on here. I yeah. I listened to. Some of the past episodes, I'm really yeah. digging your, your podcast, and I'm, Thanks, I'm very flattered to be among uh, yeah. among those people who've done it. Thanks, man. And the and the, and the other thing on, on the websites you were just talking about the the one that's uh, JoelGoston.com that has a lot of your writing on it too. So if people want to read uh, some of your music writing. It's all on there, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I've got some things I'm trying to, to, to get up there in the not too distant future. I just did an interview with Martin BC, the producer. Yeah. Engineer out of New York. You know, he did all the all the the, the real sort of uh big underground new bands in New York in the eighties. Yeah. Sonic yeah. Youth, yeah. Swan, all that stuff. Nice. Very interesting guy. So that should be coming up really hopefully this weekend, depending nice. on how quickly I can get things done. Yeah. Um yeah, and that's that's another way to contact me. My Gmail was connected to that site, so um, you know I I always love you know hearing from people who who get copies of what I do, and yeah. you know, it's always a pleasure to hear from people in places in the world I would never imagine hearing from. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're into something I'm doing, and I mean that's that's that is what is it's great. More, yeah, more than money. We're yeah. doing and everybody's doing right now is that none of us are hitting millions of people, right. yeah. but we're hitting the right people at the right time. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's worth doing because you never know who's going to be impacted by something you're doing. And yeah. Yeah. what, what starts in someone's bedroom could hit somebody in Sweden, like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And that's always, that's always worth getting, giving yourself to something because you never know where it's going to go. Yeah, definitely. 
Awesome. On that note, uh, thanks again, man, for doing this. And uh, I should have it up soon. And, uh, yeah, I hope you have a, a good weekend. And stay safe out there, sir. Yeah, you too. And I hope I didn't ramble too much. Oh, no, no. I want people to ramble on here. <laughs> so it's fine. Yeah, I'm the same way. You know, I just want yeah. people to talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, again, man, I appreciate your time. And I hope you stay safe. And when this bullshit's over, let's make plans to yeah. meet up sometime. Yeah, definitely. All right. No, man. maybe with Larry Kelly. And yeah, so. yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, we got to get him. I haven't heard from him in a bit. So, yeah. Awesome, man. Great. Well, enjoy your holiday and uh, we'll keep in touch. You too. Thanks, man. Cheers. Bye. Cheers.